Taylor, thank you so much. You guys clap for Taylor, please. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at Faith Bible Church. If you're accustomed to seeing Mark in here, uh, Mark is returning from Brazil this morning. Uh, so I think he might actually be with us in the second service today, but they're coming in uh, through Dallas uh, but after spending a week in Brazil doing some ministry uh, there. So pray for a good uh, restful weekend uh, for him as he starts into his Monday tomorrow. Uh, perhaps you know that the U.S. standard railroad gauge, so the distance between the rails, perhaps you know that it is precisely four feet, eight and one-half inches. So why such an arbitrary number? I mean, why not round up or down or at least land somewhere uh, a, a little more fixed? Well, the reason is that's how wide they built them in England. And American railroads were largely engineered by British expatriates, designing them for already existing British equipment. And why, you ask, did the English adopt that particular gauge? Because the people who built the pre-locomotive tramways that already existed they used that gauge. And the tramways used that gauge because the people who built the tramway cars, they used the same parts and tools that were used for building wagons, which were set on a gauge of four feet, eight and one half inches. And why were wagons built to that scale? Well, because any other size would mean that the wheels would not match the old established wheel ruts on the roads that ran through the English countryside. And who built those roads? Well, the first long-distance highways in Europe, they were built by Imperial Rome. They were built for the, the benefit of transporting the Roman legions. The ruts were first made by Roman war chariots, four feet, eight and one-half inches, which was the width of a war chariot, which was equal to two strides of a Roman soldier. And so you see, see even though a, there's been a lot of technology, a lot of change since, since the time of the early Roman Empire, some things remain unchanged. What was established then remains in place today. You know, I think about our church in the last decade. Our church has gone through a massive amount of change in the last uh, nine years or so. Back in 2010, we built what we used to call the new building. The new building included the room we're sitting in right now. So you guys sitting over here, you're sitting on top of what used to be an outdoor asphalt basketball court, right about there. The goals had the stiffest rims you, you could ever find anywhere. I'm so glad to see that thing go. And right over here used to sit an old white farmhouse. When I first came here on staff, they tried to get me to live in it. Uh, I turned it down. And when I turned it down, we tore it down, and we plopped about 28,000 square feet of new building right on top of it. In 2011, we added a venue worship service, which eventually became the third service hour which then resulted in having two education hours, two ABF times, and that, that drastically complicated church life and programming, perhaps as much as anything else before or, or after. Then there was a pretty dramatic turnover in, in, in staff in 2015, a total restructuring of our staff and, and leadership followed that season. 
And there's also been accelerated growth in these recent years, which that brings a, a host of good changes. And now, for the first time in about 30 years, we're, we're not worshiping in, in some version of the old sanctuary, the, the room over here on the northwest side of our campus. That area had been a fixture for our gathered worship since the late 1980s. But now we are primary, primarily worshiping together in this room. And this is a remodeled gymnasium. Not bad for an old gym, right? This is a beautiful, beautiful space. And there's just a couple of more features being added here in the next couple of weeks. We're going to see our carpet uh, finally go down. We're trying to fix a few things on the floor. And once the carpet go down, goes down, the rest of the finishes will come into place. But even alongside that, we're, we're currently changing the, the worship leadership almost every week as, as we transition and navigate uh, another season of change. And so, man, that's a, that's a lot of change. And truth be told, you, Faith Bible Church, you've handled it really, really well. You have. I really applaud your flexibility, your lack of grumbling, your, your openness to all of this. I commend you for the, the trust that you've shown the leadership. It's been a little bit crazy, that I would certainly admit to you, but it's also been very, very good. There's an old adage that I suppose is true, and it is, the only thing constant is change. Someone once added to that little axiom, except at church. <laughs> the only thing constant is change, except at church. And I suppose that is very often true. Churches are notorious for despising change, but not here. You've, you've embraced the changes, and, and I and the other elders are, are so very grateful. Which leads to the primary reason for this sermon series that we're in. What, what Mark has done in the first two weeks, and what I hope to do today, is assure you that in the midst of all this change, the change of ABF times and worship venues and parking and worship leadership and numerical growth, amidst all this change, our church's doctrine, our, our commitment to biblical preaching, our, our emphasis on gospel proclamation, none of that, none of that is going to change. Similar to how you can trace the reason for the gauge of the railroad back 2,000 years, you can trace our reason for being back that far as well. You can trace it back to a church like the one in Thessalonica, and you can find the same priorities. So the burden of this short sermon series is to wrap our arms around what is described in this model church in Thessalonica, to embrace these attributes the way that they did. They were excellent and they were elect, and they were exemplary, and they were evangelistic, and they were expectant. And I don't have any other E-words to use and alliterate in our sermon outline today, so they've been exhausted. <laughs> but we hope to say, as we look at those attributes, yeah, we, we are too. We are too. We're excellent, and elect, and exemplary, and evangelistic, and expectant. Sure, we have, you know, colorful lights, and and, and projectors and what appears to be a giant aquarium for our drum set. <laughs> Lots of things they didn't have in the first century. But we have these fundamental attributes that Paul commends here. And so today we're going to look a little closer at this church in Thessalonica. We're going to see what else we can glean from this model congregation. And we're going to do this by looking at the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. But before we look there, I want us to read the account of the church's first days and weeks, which you can find that in Acts chapter 17. 
Acts chapter 17. As you turn there, you know, you may usually associate Acts 17 with Paul in Athens at the Aragapus, preaching at Mars Hill. But in the verses preceding that great sermon, he is bringing the gospel to the churches in Thessalonica and in Berea. He has just left the city of Philippi, which Paul got there by, by way of the Macedonian vision. It's called that because Paul, on his second missionary journey, he was trying to move the gospel into northern Asia Minor, and he was facing resistance to that. So the Holy Spirit appeared to him, told him to go west to Macedonia. So he gets on a boat and he goes west. And I would argue that Paul's Macedonian vision and his subsequent landing and ministry in Philippi, that is the most important event in the history of Western civilization. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. It's the arrival of the gospel in Europe. And the impact of that really can't be overstated. Anyway, after both gospel success and brutal mistreatment in the Roman colony of Philippi, Paul and Silas, they they set out to make the 100-mile journey to Thessalonica. This is a major port city, and establishing a church in in a hub like Thessalonica would be a strategic move for the growth of the church. That's why it was very intentional. So let's read now. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this is whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and And joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Amen. So with this passage, we move into the first point in your notes, the church's story. And what's fascinating, really, is this story itself. This is a fascinating account. And Paul's strategy, as you know, was to start preaching in the synagogue. The book of Acts records Paul doing this on 12 different occasions. He had not done it in Philippi because there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, but there was one in Thessalonica. And so for three Sabbath days, he visits, he visits the synagogue and he reasons with the people from the scriptures. And at this point in time, the scriptures, that would have just been the Old Testament. So from the Old Testament, Paul and Silas, they explain and prove that Jesus is the Messiah. That he suffered in the place of sinners on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And I love the way this is described because from this account, it appears that Paul let the word of God do the work of preaching for him. 
His appeal wasn't emotional or experiential. This was not a, a sales pitch. It certainly wasn't hostile. His appeal in the synagogue was scriptural. He let the word do the work. Remember that fact. It's going to show up again later. And not only were the, the Jews trusting in Christ, but Greeks were also, as well as some of the leading women. And what the word leading means is some of the influential women. Some of the prominent women in the city were, were leaving paganism with its pantheon of gods and its sexual exploitation, and they were finding life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, in both Philippi and in Thessalonica, Luke, the writer of Acts, he reports the salvation of prominent women. You have Lydia in Philippi, and then you have these leading women in Thessalonica. And the beautiful irony of that is in his years as a Jewish Pharisee, Paul would have prayed a particular prayer every morning. And the prayer was this, Lord, thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And yet look who God is bringing to himself through Paul's preaching. Gentiles and women. And if you go back to his work in Philippi, a slave girl is also saved. Just completing the trifecta. And so now look at verse 3. But the Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous, so they form a mob and they go hunting for Paul and Silas. But the best they can do is find their host, a man named Jason, and they drag Jason before the authorities. And, and look at what they declare at the end of verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now let me say, that, that statement is, is stunning. It says they were chanting it or yelling it. And that's such a, a great way to describe just the force of the gospel message. Just the statement itself thrills me. That, that any men could so affect the world that people would say they're turning it upside down. That's tremendous, isn't it? I mean, most people live their whole life and the world doesn't even know they're alive. There are multitudes of Christians who have absolutely no effect on anything. Yet here were two people of whom the world has said, they've turned us upside down. And if you think that's amazing, remember, th remember this, they've only been to one other town on the whole continent, Philippi. They, they, they just arrived in Europe. And already through the events of a few days in one town, people are convinced that these men are fundamentally changing the world. And, and the news has drifted all the way to Thessalonica. It's over 100 miles away. Somebody once said, there are people who watch things happen, and there are people who make things happen, and there are people who don't know what's happening. <laughs> well, Paul and Silas were people who made things happen. Every time they took a step, the world shook. And it seems God's, he, he's always had those kinds of people. We see this in men like Elijah and Jeremiah and, and the other prophets of the Old Testament. You know, one I like to think about is the prophet Amos. Amos was a pretty simple guy. He was a farmer, but, but when he spoke, the world shook. In Amos chapter 7, verse 10, Amaziah, he's the priest at Bethel. He, he sends a message to, to Jeroboam, the wicked king of Israel. And this is what he said, 
He said, Amos has conspired against thee, which was a total lie. Amos wasn't conspiring. He was just speaking the truth. Amaziah said, Amos has conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. And listen to this. The land is not able to bear his words. Amaziah basically saying, there is a weight of meaning to what he's saying that we can't handle. We can't bear it. We can't tolerate it. Now, it's often said that no century in history has been quite as similar to the first century as this century. And I can certainly see that. But if that's true, the church should, and the message of the gospel should, be upsetting the world in a manner like the first century, shouldn't it? If the religious pluralism and secularism and hedonism and a host of other isms of the first century and the 20th or the 21st century are the same, and if the message of the gospel is the same, shouldn't the church be turning the world upside down just the same? Are we? Well, I believe in some places we are. I recently watched a documentary on the disciple-making movement that is taking place in Iran. The, the, the film is called Sheep Among Wolves. It's one of the most power, powerful things I've, I've, I've watched in a long, long time. I, I dare you to watch it and not be brought to tears. It's thrilling and beautiful and it's convicting. I just transcribed a, a few parts of it that really hit on this point of upsetting the world. Listen to this. Today, Iran is home to the fastest-growing church in the world. How many of you knew that? It's almost entirely Muslim background. They they have almost no denominational leanings or affiliation. They have no governmental recognition or legitimacy. They have no bank accounts. They have no 501c3s. They have no centralized leadership. They have no Bible schools or seminaries. They own no properties or church buildings, and they possess no assets. On top of that, despite being Muslim background, they are by and large aggressively and passionately pro-Israel. That is, they love the Jewish people. And on top of that, it's primarily led by women. The film goes on. What if I told you Islam is dead? One unidentified Iranian church leader says in the film. What if I told you the mosques are empty inside Iran? What if I told you no one follows Islam inside of Iran? Would you believe me? This is exactly what is happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully in Iran. The power of Disciple-making movements is that it is obedience-based discipleship. This is explained in the film. So it's based on the authority of Scripture. And every time you read the Scripture, one of the leaders says, you must obey it. This is how people become conformed to the image of Christ and sanctified. They are not just reading the Bible for information. They are reading the Bible to get transformed. The film cites one Iranian couple that had the opportunity to to move to the United States. And after living in America for a matter of months, the wife decided she wanted to move back to Iran, telling her surprised husband, there is a satanic lullaby here. All the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. Are we too sleepy to upset the world? 
too comfortable, too, too preoccupied? The U.S.-based creator of this film says, I believe that what is happening in the church in Iran is going to become a measuring stick for the global body of Christ. It is not something that we will be able to admire from afar. It is going to be something we are required to participate in. He says this, it is going to disrupt our lives. There's an incredible story being written about the church in Iran. Through the message of the gospel, God is turning their world upside down. God is still writing the story of Faith Bible Church. We're, we're 40 years old next year. We've been here in Edmond for a generation now. God is at work. It should be our prayer that God would use us to turn the world upside down. That through our faithful proclamation, the land would not be able to bear our words. Okay, that's the church's story. Now I want to turn back over to 1 Thessalonians and look at the next three points. The next three points are the church's memory, the church's purpose, and the church's conviction. So first, the church's memory. Let's read the first 11 verses of chapter 2 together. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts." For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So the reason this, this second point is titled the church's memory is because six times in these 11 verses, Paul says, you know, or you remember, or you were witnesses. Paul is aware that the reception of he and Silas was a little bit rocky. He, he knows those who hate him are still in town. They're trying to ruin his reputation. So he seeks to remind the church as to how things really went, lest he offend their famous guest. The evangelist, however, knowing that the fear of men bringeth a snare, was determined not to compromise the truth. He also knew that great leaders need the Lord as much as anyone, so he boldly proclaimed the gospel. In fact, halfway through his message, he said this, I understand that Andrew Jackson is present in the congregation today. 
If he does not repent of his sins and accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, he will be just as lost as anyone who has never asked God for forgiveness. And instead of becoming angry, Jackson, Jackson admired the preacher for his courage. He listened with keen interest to the message and felt such deep conviction that after the service, Cartwright was able to lead him to the Lord. From that moment on, the two became very, very close friends. Bold, bold was the ministry of Paul and Silas. The church would have also remembered them to be trustworthy. Notice the features of Paul's preaching from verses 3 and 4. Our message is true. It's not from error. Our message is pure. It's not from impure motives. Our message is honest. We're not trying to trick you. Our, our message is trustworthy. We've been entrusted with the gospel. You ever been invited to, to, to lunch or coffee by an old friend only to find out they're trying to, to rope you into some multi-level marketing scheme? <laughs> and, and no offense if you've been successful in multi-level marketing. Not what I'm saying. I just want you to tell me before our meeting and not have you spring it on me halfway through. Don't hide it. That's Paul's preaching. It, it was straightforward. He wasn't hiding anything. It was from God, and therefore it was truthful. It was trustworthy. It was also humble. Verse 5 says, you know we never use flattery nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. And then verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people. Safe to say, because of mass media and global communications, it has never been easier for a, for a preacher to seek glory from people. Arrogant, self-seeking, narcissistic preachers, they, they are everywhere. And their ministries, that they're propagated by easy publishing, by social media, all kinds of different ways. They're, they're not like Paul, who refused to preach himself, but he only preached Christ and him crucified. Paul's humility is striking. He was humble. He'd also been gentle. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. This is a lovely image that I think goes, ag goes against the grain of our mental picture of the Apostle Paul. Of all the, worlds we, all the words we might use to describe Paul, somehow, somehow the word gentle doesn't always come to mind. Strong, yes. Determined, yes. Zealous, yes impassioned, yes, but, but gentle? Nonetheless, here it is. We were gentle, he says, like a, like a mother caring for her children. The Greek text is even more picturesque. It, it means like a mother tenderly nursing her own children. A nursing mother. That, that suggests giving of yourself and from yourself for the benefit of others. A nursing mother gives nourishment out of her own body directly to her children. As she gives out, they take in. They're made strong. Paul's ministry was like that. It was also sacrificial. Sacrificial. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. He shared the gospel with the Thessalonians, that we all know, but he says he was delighted to give them even more than that. He gave them his own life. That's pastoral ministry right there, encapsulated in one sentence. He gave them his own life. Mm. Last way they would remember Paul is that he was blameless. You are witnesses. 
And so is God, how devoutly, devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. To be blameless means to live in such a way that no one can make a serious accusation against you. It means living in such a way that anyone who finds fault with you would have to tell a lie to get that, that claim to stick. So these that, that turned the world upside down, they, they were not obnoxious and loud and tactless and argumentative and bombastic. You know, that would have gotten them attention and probably angered a lot of people, but it, it probably wouldn't have changed anything. The one who has upset the world, these, they were courageous and humble and sacrificial and gentle and trustworthy and blameless. Now let's, let's go to verse 12. Verse 12. The, the reason Paul showed up in Thessalonica, the reason he did all this noble work among them, he tells us the reason for it in verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his glorious kingdom and glory. So he pivots from talking about his ministry like a mother. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus earned it. And if you're exhausted today because you've been trying to earn it, stop looking at yourself and look to Christ and his work on the cross for you. It's there. The end of verse 12 says, God has called you into his, to his kingdom and glory. When you were saved, you came into the kingdom. And, and because of that entrance, you're now ruled by the king. Jesus Christ. You, you're not yet in the glorious fulfillment of the kingdom. Don't hear me say that. Yet you, you haven't with gratitude. And this is where the account of this church's founding in Acts 17, it, it comes back into view for us. Paul is grateful because when they heard the word, they received it. Paul, he went into the synagogue. The, the preacher's authority is the Bible itself. God chose to reveal himself to his people through his word. His word is inspired and infallible and inerrant. Thus, it's authoritative. It holds all the cards for us that it will not ret return void. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This is why Paul describes it as, as at work in them. Talking to Mark about coming on staff at Faith Bible Church, uh, the church needed a youth pastor, and I'm pretty sure I was the only youth pastor Mark knew. <laughs> so I was at the top of the list. It really teaches the Bible. <laughs> and so that's what we are. That's what we are. And that's not going to change. Modern preaching has been described as a mild-mannered man encouraging mild-mannered people to be more mild-mannered. The hour. Anything else wouldn't work. It wouldn't have worked in the first century. It's not going to work God, I pray as we think about this church in Thessalonica, as we think about Paul and Silas and its founding, as we think about it, the attributes of this, of this ancient church and what was important to them, Lord, I, I pray that we would find those important things here, that we would be committed to these things. Lord, I pray as part of the church leadership here, God, I pray that we would lead the way in, in championing these these different causes, and that these people would just passionately and aggressively follow. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've delivered it to us. We thank you that we, we, we know you by our consistent study of it. Lord, and we thank you that it's here that we find 
the gospel. We find the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and what he's done for us to reconcile us to you, to forgive us, and to give us eternal life. God, thank you for what's in these pages and for being so gracious to give it to us. So, Lord, I pray that we build everything on this. And, Lord, I pray that you give us the grace to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.